Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There are many centers throughout the U.S. and around the world that provide suitable and helpful care for children and adolescents that need it. However, there are many others that stumble beneath the weight of the system that is simply not working. One of these centers was McLaren Hall in El Monte, California. McLaren Hall was supposed to be dedicated to the care of unwanted, abused, orphaned, and neglected children. In the first instance, it was set up to keep non-delinquent wards of state away from those designated delinquent children after they've been housed together at the country juvenile hall from the 1940s until its closure in 2003, Clarion Hall housed tens of thousands of children over the years. McLaren Hall and other institutions like are notorious for the depths of incompetence to which allegedly sank. As the saying goes, there is no smoke without fire. And many residents of McLaren Hall who have since been refused access to their records from that place believe they have been destroyed to protect the administration and staff from allegations of abuse and neglect. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to shedding light on issues that usually get swept under the rug. I'm Carla Stevens Tolstoy, your host. And today, we're going to take a look at the case of Michael James who as a child was neglected by his parents and stayed at various institutions before finding himself at McLaren Hall. His is a typical story of a child who, through no fault of his own, had a poor start to life, which was compounded by the child protection system. Our reporter in the UK, Chris Malou, spoke with Michael to discuss the experiences he had to endure during his time at McLaren Hall. Michael doesn't remember exactly how old he was when he arrived at McLaren Hall. He believes he was 11 or 12. His parents' neglectful behavior, influenced by their drinking habits, led him to a nearby friend whose mother called the authorities. first arrived at a McLaren Hall when you were roughly about 11? I, I used the frame of reference for when President Reagan had attempted assassination because I remember seeing that on the television in the day room. All the staff were watching it and talking about it. And so that is a, so that was 1981, I believe. And um, I was 11 almost 12. Did you have any brothers or sisters? On my mother's side, yes. My mom got around quite a bit. She had been married four times prior. 
And all of them went through pretty much the same thing, except for my half sister. And she, you know, married people that were drinkers. I mean, she was a waitress. My father was a bartender. Okay. So obviously you were very young and it's possible that your parents had been drinking for quite some time before that, uh, before you recognized that there was an issue there. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Yeah, that is. That's a very good point. I, I don't think I recognized that earlier until I was, you know, 10 or 11 or so. Other than the alcohol, was there any other, were they involved with, with drugs or anything? No, no, no. Uh, my father was a veteran of World War II. He was much older in my life in the early 80s. And I don't think, and I was the only child of his. So I don't think, again, he was pre prepared for that. So, but there was no drugs and there was no physical abuse, no other abuse that I remember. Just, it was, it was a, a mentality of a child should be seen and not heard. Almost an indifference. With hindsight, do you think that you actually exhibited any hyperactive behavior? I, I was, I, I, I was a hyperactive kid, but I wasn't a kid that was getting in trouble a lot. I mean, I liked to climb trees. I remember getting in trouble for that. And it was just seemed like, um, you know, oh my God, he's climbing trees. We need to medicate him. And then, so I was starting to be put on medication, such as Ritalin. I was given Ritalin, you know, several times a day, twice a day, three times a day, I think I was taking it. I, there wasn't a lot of Nowadays, I think we look at hyperactivity and say, okay, a child is hyperactive. We give them more things to do. We engage them more. Back then, I was, instead of giving me projects or something to do, it was, you know, shut up, take a pill and calm down. It wasn't so much that Michael had been a troublesome child. From what Michael says, it was more that his parents did not have a clear idea of how they want to live their own lives, let alone the type of environment in which they want to raise a child. This isn't untypical. Some people in society find themselves in a position where they are reacting to the events in their lives rather than being in control and making the life they really want. With the doubt, lack of self-confidence and lack of education often comes a general lack of motivation, which can extend to childcare Often the slide into apathy can seem relatively slow to parents and they don't realize how bad things have gotten and how quickly a child can be affected until the situation has gotten out of hand. By then, there may be no other option but for the authorities to step in until the parents can get back on track. In Michael's case, he was taken to McLaren Hall. What do you remember? I mean, that's that's a day when you ran away from home. You ended up telling a policeman the situation at home, that your parents drank a lot and they weren't looking after you properly. From that night, what, what happened? Uh, did they, did the police take you to a foster home for that, for, for the night or did they? No, no, they took me straight to McLaren. No, my, I remember my mother and father arguing um, about what? I don't know. Don't know the details of the argument. There was a lot of arguing. It wasn't directed at me. I ran away to a friend's house. 
which was just a, a couple blocks over. And his mom was a single mom of three kids. And she and, and she had called the police on my behalf. And she had actually tried to call my mom. And she was telling the police officer that I, she had, oh, when she was talking to him, they were, she could tell that they were drunk and that they were drinking. And that night is when they, they took me down to the police station. They didn't put me in a jail cell. I, I was sitting out in the lobby. Um, a police officer brought me a bag of popcorn out of the vending machine. Strangely, I think it was two detectives that actually drove me there. Because when we got there, we got to that gate that you see. I remember very, very clearly them getting out of the car and putting their firearms in the trunk of the car and locking the trunk. So I think it was definitely two detectives, plainclothes detectives. And this was late at night. This was like, you know, midnight, one o'clock at night. That's how I remember writing it. Well, when you arrived at McLaren Hall that first time, uh, were you shown to a room or uh, was it a dormitory? <laughs> Um, no, it was very strange. Like I said, I'd already been, you know, to a couple of institutions, so I kind of had an idea of what I may be getting into. You know, this was, this was different. This was just, there's a big, huge administration room there. And there's a big couch and you just sit out there on the couch and all the doors are locked and there's a bunch of people behind the, um, um, the administration, the desk behind there. It's a, it's a separate room. And uh, a man had come out. I thought he was really strange looking. Very dirty, very... His face was all scarred up. He tried to snap me to attention. Get up. Get in here. Take your clothes off. Get naked. And I just... that I, I had never encountered that got me into the shower, sprayed me with some powder, sprayed me with some soap, watched me shower, told me how to clean myself. I thought that was just the most, I, at that time, I had never, I just thought that was the scariest moment. That up until that point, that was one of the scariest moments as a kid. He was a strange, he was a strange looking person. He wasn't groomed or anything, and he just spoke very loudly and very deep and very authoritarian, you know. Rub here, put your hands there, scrub there, do this, do that. Gave me a pair of jeans and a white t-shirt and a gray sweater, told me to get dressed and marched me to one of the cottages. And this was at, you know, probably 2 a.m. in the morning and it was cold outside and all I had was a t-shirt. Took me to the tiger's wing and they're, it's, it's, they're not dormitories. They were rooms with three beds in them. So there was probably, I'm going to say, one, two, three, four rooms with three beds and then one isolation room. So you had a, a bed with two other kids in the room. And you went to sleep and woke up and, you know, it was just a whole different world. You know, you'd wake up and there's strange kids you've never seen before and staff parking orders and, um, nobody is nice nobody is kind it's 
know, boom, we need to go here, go there. And, and that was a big, big change. At the time, I didn't know it. I thought I was in jail. For the children and adolescents that lived at McLaren Hall, no matter how long they stayed there, it had an impact on them. As frightened youngsters coming from troubled homes, they should have been ushered into a safe space of tenderness and compassion. Instead, these children were left feeling as though they'd entered a prison to punish them for some misdeed. Former residents have spoken about the time at Clarina Hall and how they were raised in an atmosphere of fear facing abuse from staff who were meant to care for them. The many reports of cruelty cannot be unfounded. So you felt like you'd done something terrible and you'd been put into this jail? Yes. And the counselors made you feel that all the time. They, you were, it was constantly beat into your head. You know, you're here because you did this or you're here because you did that. And, it, you know, there were always lectures about what the next level was, juvenile hall, prison, and, and, and they were right. <laughs> they were right to some degree because they didn't do anything to encourage a, a, a path otherwise. When you arrived at McLaren Hall, you were in Tigers. Tigers, yes. I'd been in Tigers and then Junior Boys and then Senior Boys. I'd been all, and I was also in the, um, um, what they called the, um, oh, there was another, it was more like the kids that had emotional and psychiatric problems. Um, UI, I think it was called, or IU, ICU maybe. I think it was called ICU. I see. It was right up there by the front administration office. I see. You mentioned you had a girlfriend before at McLaren Hall. That probably ranks as, as one of your best memories at McLaren Hall. Yeah, Deborah, Deborah Tate Anastasia. We were in the ICU ward together. You know, we were both emotionally distraught from our, you know, our childhood and our parents. I know that she had come from a relationship where her father was very abusive and um, her mother was in the flat hall and she had had many suicide attempts and we had that in common. Um, in the ICU ward, there's a, it's, it's a big long hallway and you had one room per kid and it was co-ed. It was co-ed. There, there was actually, you know, but on that side, the the girls and then the boys were on this side, and um, we were directly across from one another. And she knew sign language, and um, she would teach me sign language. And we would sit there across from the room and do sign language. And you know, I learned all the alphabets and everything, and from her and. Um, and we, I mean, when I say girlfriend, we were, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, there was never any physical flirting or, you know, an innocent, kind of like the wonder years type of thing. <laughs> That's what it was. So she was like your best female friend and you were her best. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. How did you, how did you spend your days when you weren't with your girlfriend? Well, they did have a school. You know, you did go to school. School was different from the cottages. It was 
vastly different because on one hand you're in the school and it's again very or i mean on one hand you're in the cottages it's very strict very discipline orientated very authoritarian and then you would go to the school and the teachers were usually very nice very compassionate um i remember mrs brown she was a teacher there and she was a very nice lady there were volunteers that would come into the school and you know volunteer their time but after school that was over with so in the cottages you would you know go back to your room they would have the shift change and be in your room for an hour you know with the other two kids that you're in there with then you know dinner time go out on the yard play for a little while and then tv time in um to bed <laughs> You know, there, there, I mean, that, that, that's, that was the level of engagement. What was school like? Can you remember anything that you, anything substantial that you learned there? Uh, was there? Was there a great deal of effort put into the teaching or was it really just something to keep you all busy? I, th I think there was a great deal of effort by some of the teachers that were trying to put into it. It, 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 I mean, I don't remember it being a school as in the sense you have one class, then you go, you, you, okay, you have math and you have a history class and then you're constantly changing classes. I remember it as, as I had one class and then there was a lunch break and then you would go back to the cottages for lunch and then you would come back to school and you would have your afternoon class. And there was math, history, science, music um, that you could sign up for. Our teacher actually had pet snakes in the class that she would bring rats in and, or mice and feed them and teach us about evolution, <laughs> which I thought was weird. Uh, <laughs> watching a snake eat a mouse. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> Those are, those are some of the memories of school. I, it, it wasn't in juvenile hall later on when I went to juvenile hall, it was very much, there was no effort whatsoever to educate at all. Have you ever thought I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal and everyone at my company, the sound off podcast network had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Some stayed at McLaren Hall for only a few days before being moved on. Others stayed for years before they were eventually pushed out upon turning 18. The preparation for leaving McLaren Hall was apparently non-existent. Former residents have told us that there was no plan in place for what they would do with their money or shelter once they left. Once they were past the large gates that guarded the entrance to the facility, these young people were out on their own.
was it easy to make friends with uh, other boys or, or did, did were there cliques did you get into cliques or groups or everybody was you know constantly on edge with everybody else and there was racial tension too there was some racial tension caucasian kids were in the minority for sure there was a greater amount of hispanic and african-american kids there there, there just was and there was some you know, racial tension on a much younger level. Not a ton, but, you know, kids did not, we did not get along with each other. Not, you know, or at least I didn't. I was, I was, I was very, again, introverted and isolated and did not make friends easily myself. There were other kids that did. I remember in one of your messages, uh, you mentioned seeing a child's arm being twisted right back behind him. That that was that was a shocking moment. I had never seen anything like that in my life. I'd never seen a grown man um, take a child's arm, and basically, what it is is that your arm would be out like this, and you grab your arm, put it out like this, and then they would wrap their arm around it forcing it up like that. So this joint right here would bend back. And this kid, I, I'd never heard a child scream like that. And his only infraction was, was talking during mealtime. We were not supposed to talk during mealtime. And he was warned several times not to do it. And the man came out from behind the counter, grabbed him, bent his arm like that and this kid did not wasn't did not even reach the way his head did not even reach the waistline I mean that's how small he was of the man doing that and I just I don't understand how a grown man could do that to a child I just don't um, and, and as part of your job this is what you do to control behavior. Instead of talking, instead of engaging, you go right through the pain, you know, and then take them to the room. And that was a lesson to everybody else. You know, this is what will happen to you if you continue talking during your time. And that was a case of an adult pretty much taking advantage strength and weight over a small child but were, were there any other unseemly instances of unseemly conduct um from a staff member to a child that you can remember yeah i mean that was pretty common there were certain staff members that you know like to watch the kids shower you know um there were certain staff members that would with their hands where they, it doesn't belong on a child. And yes, that happened to me several times. Um, it happened to several other kids. And when complaints were made to other children or to other staff members or to like, you know, when you saw your court-appointed social worker that did not work in the current hall that came from the Department of Social Services to, to assess your case, those complaints went nowhere. They, they fell on deaf ears. As a matter of fact, I clearly remember my social worker telling me, you know, 
I'm very sorry that you're going you're you're going through this. Um, you're just going to have to toughen up. I I remember those words, and this was a, a young middle-aged lady who was probably a mother herself, probably married. I will never forget those words that came out of her mouth. It was it's just yeah. I mean, in, in in retrospect, you look at that and you think, really? <laughs> so, um, and I think. Later on, that's what led me to attack one of the staff members with a knife. Ultimately, that's what I ended up doing. I ended up attacking a man with a butter knife. Physical, sexual, and mental abuse was part of the regular routine at McLaren Hall and it contributed to behavior problems that the children would have in later life. That the staff were so free to prey upon the vulnerabilities of these small children would have led to feelings that they were less than human, less worthy, for whatever reason of love and affection. There's only so much a person can take before he or she finally says, enough. Right, yeah, it was Mr. Ortega. Mr. Or yeah, Mr. Ortega, yeah. A short Hispanic fella who had me up against the corner and he had his hands and he was rubbing his hands in my crotch and with his other hand he was holding my head up against the wall and when he was done, um, I had ran into my room and um, we had stolen the butter knife out of the, um, the, the kitchen area. And we had this crazy plan that we were going to dig the rubber out around the windows, push the window out and escape that night. Silly, but um, I grabbed it and I ran out into the hallway and I had it in my hand and I was screaming at it and I was running for him. And I saw this look on his face, this total look of like, oh my God. And it scared me seeing that look on his face because I I had never been the product of calling somebody causing somebody somebody else anger or I mean somebody else anguish and even at that age I it was it was very difficult for me to process that I never wanted to cause somebody else pain or suffering um, and so I threw the knife on the ground uh, before I reached and they you know, put me in isolation, called the police. The police came and arrested me, asked me why I did it. I told them why I did it. I gave a statement as to why I did it, and it was the last I heard. Mr. Ortega, touching you inappropriately, uh, did it ever go any further than that at the time? No, it did not. No, it did not. It did not. Not for me, anyway. Um, that Those type of incidences were... Um, somewhat common um, I do know that it happened with other children namely in the girls units um, that was understood by a lot of people that that type of behavior was going on was there ever anything between the children themselves that was allowed to go on yeah it was kind of it went on it did as kids will experiment and kids will do things and there was one um, in junior boys. There was one kid that he'd gotten sexually assaulted by another kid in the bigger kids. 
And he came running out of the room, screaming. And I remember the staff member saying, I remember his name too. His name was John Carter. He was a brutal SOB. I still got scars on my arm from this guy. And this kid comes running out, screaming, saying that, you know, uh, the kid had um, you know, held him down and um, had sex with him. And he had said, um, oh, you got your little cherry pop. Well, you know, welcome to the club. Now get back to your room. But the other kid that had engaged in it was still allowed to, you know, I don't remember him getting any trouble. You know, he bragged about it. It was a source of pride for him. You know, he would use that to threaten other kids. Did you go to any other institutions after that or? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you name it. Um, if you can name an institution in Southern California, I was probably there um, because my behavior just progressively got worse. Um, not so much in, 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 I didn't adapt well. I did not adapt well with other kids, with, other, with authority. I preferred to be in isolation as much as possible because I could not be around other people. So I would often get into fights, get into arguments that would get me put into isolation. And that's where I felt safe. Um, from McLaren Hall, I went to Los Podrinos Juvenile Hall, which is in Downey, California. That was very, hey, if McLaren Hall was brutal, this was, you know, a concentration camp for children because there was major overt physical abuse against kids. I mean, if you acted up, uh, the counselor really had no problem with grabbing you by the neck and slamming you to the ground and taking you off to isolation. It, it was just, it happened 10 times a day, all day. And it, it was just really, really bad. Um, another stay at Camarillo State Hospital for several attempts at suicide. Yeah, I think I'd gone back to Camarillo at least twice. And in, uh, in, it's right around Oxnard and Ventura. And that's, you know, there was a lot of um, drug therapy, you know, drugged and, and um, a lot of humiliation therapy. As the years have gone by, the children who once lived there have had to deal with the aftermath of the time at McLaren Hall. Each individual has had to reconcile the circumstances that led them to McLaren Hall. The treatment they received and how unprepared they were for leaving that place and re-entering the wider world. You mentioned that you tried to end your life a few times. Was it compelled by, I suppose, uh, by the treatment that you received at places like McLaren Hall? Oh God, yeah. I mean, the lack of, the lack of affection, the lack of nurturing, the lack. I mean, this is all in retrospect. When I look at my behavior and I see myself sitting in one of these rooms or, you know, I ask myself, what, and this is in therapy what I've encountered to this day. I'm, I, you know, I still want to see a therapist. I still talk with therapists. You know, what were you missing most? What do you think was the primary 
thing that was absent in your life that caused you to attempt suicide. You jumped off a building, you cut your wrist, I mean, um, you tried to hang yourself several times, you almost got brain damage. Um, all these different things, what were you missing? I was missing attention, I was missing love, I was missing engagement. There was nothing but, you know, what appeared from my perspective, a complete hatred of the children, not just me, but the children around me. You know, it wasn't a, a, a point of selfishness that, you know, it's like, oh, well, this is just all happening to me. No, it's happening to everybody else. And while other kids were somewhat disengaged by that, I felt it. I took it personally when I saw somebody else, when the other kids be hurt or neglected. I was, you know, I was just enraged. Like, you know, my God, like, why would you do that? Why? And I'm the same way to this day, to this very day. I'm very much, you know, angered and by apathy and neglect. And, and, you know, those are my triggers. When I see that, you know, it's, you know, I I freeze and I I have zero tolerance for it. It just, you know, it's like a couple couple weeks ago, for example. Um... We were remodeling the office, and um, the office overlooks a portion of the street where um, I can't remember the name of the organization, but it's an organization that helps homeless youth. And they sit out there on the sidewalk, and you know, you they're teenagers, neglected, dirty. You know, just kind of sitting there waiting to, you know, maybe, I don't know what they do. They go into class or I don't know what goes on there. But I sat there and I was looking out the window at him and I was completely frozen by <sighs> It just doesn't seem like anybody cared about him. This is why I didn't even feel um, that more people should care. And, um, you know, my boss had to come up to me and say, hey, you okay, what's, what's going on with you? And I was able to just kind of break away for a moment and say, oh, oh, no, I was just staring off in the sunset. I was, you know, hiding. It affects me very deeply to see other people hurt like that. You know, I could, I'm not, you know, I, of course I'm hurt by what happened to me, but seeing it on a large scale and knowing what they're going through, knowing their struggle is very big. No, got a tear out of it. <laughs> do, you, do, do, you, do you need to take a moment? No, no, it's quite all right. It's quite all right. I'm not afraid to show emotion. I'm not afraid. Let's me know I'm still human. As they turned 18, these children and adolescents were shown the door to the world beyond McLaren Hall without a clear plan to support them. After all the hardships they encountered during the time at McLaren Hall, this could have been the final opportunity they would have to set those kids on a good path with a clear structure and goals. This was an opportunity that McLaren Hall and institutions like it missed. Instead of being offered the chance of a normal life and feeling like a respected member of society by having a safe home and a job? The 
teenagers found themselves on the street with no prospects within a few days of their 18th birthday. When you were 18, um, you were what were you were released from the institution uh, that you were in at the time. Was that McLaren Hall or was that Camp Rocky or? No, actually, it was I. I the, the camp system was um, something. If I remember, you, there was a limited amount of time that you could spend there by court order, by law, or whatever, and it was. Uh, 36 weeks maximum. If I remember. So 36 weeks? Yeah, 36 weeks. And then you moved on to whatever else. You either had a successful program or not a successful program. I had started at Afroball, which was a more lenient place. You know, you went to school half the day, you worked half the day. You know, there were programs, there were all sorts of things for the kids there to do. I escaped from there, got caught, went to Rocky, completed an unsuccessful program there, and back to, and because I had no home to go to, um, I was 17, I had, there, there's no home for me to go to. I went back to Selmar Juvenile Hall, and there I just basically aged out. I basically, when I turned 18, that day I was, you know. Cut loose. We can't, yeah, we can't hold you anymore. And there is, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, let's try to find somebody or for you to go. No, it's, you know, let's see the county you were committed from, which was Los Angeles County, will take you to the bus station there and you've got the clothes on your back and that's it. Was it difficult finding work? When you first left at the age of 18, you first left the juvenile institutes. Did you try to find work or did you just? Oh, yes, I did. I did. I tried. Um, I tried washing dishes at restaurants. I tried. Um, I worked at a Taco Bell for like three days. Um, I worked at a hotel. I worked at Embassy Suites Hotel for a couple weeks. And I found that I had, in retrospect, I looked at this, I had real deep-seated issues with authority. However, I, I, did not, I still didn't understand that employer-employee dynamic. We pay you, it's our time, you work, you do what we tell you to do. That wasn't, I don't think that was sinking in. I didn't grasp that concept. I saw it as another authority figure being abusive and neglectful and authoritarian. And um, that's not, I mean, you know, you, you can't go to your manager and say, well, you know, I've got this past and this is why I do this. And it just doesn't work that way. And that, that's just the way it is. So they didn't last very long. And nowhere to go. <laughs> you know, as 18 years old, um, there's the streets to figure it out. So naturally, you know, I have to commit crimes to survive. Um, uh, burglary, um, um, for food, clothing. Um, I broke into a building and started a trash can on fire because I was cold. And um, the fire started to get out of control. 
Oh my God, I was terrified. I managed to put the fire out and, but not before an alarm went off and police came and, you know, burglary, arson. I'm I'm 18 now. It's a prison term. (laughs) It's prison. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) here we go. You know, and at that point, if you thought there was no compassion prior to that, there is less than that now. From 18 until I was 30, I was in and out of the prison system. The ill treatment of Michael endured at McLaren Hall meant that his already fragile sense of worth worsened and became a blight on his psychological well-being. It led him to several suicide attempts and resorting to petty crime. Even when he was beginning to make some progress towards a better life, the pattern of self-destruction led him to commit further crimes. I got out of the first time I got out, gotten out of prison. I would I I was in Vacaville State Hospital or Vacaville State Prison, which is a state hospital prison. Um, I still had severe emotional, suicidal, you know, um, behavior, and but it was they didn't have the therapy; they just had a room. <laughs> it was a prison cell, and it was prison. You know, I fully accept that. You know, I had broken the law and I needed to pay the price for it. In retrospect, I, I look, that's how I look at it all now. Um, but, you know, I'd been released and I was on parole and I was in a, I went to a residential treatment facility and I think it was almost two years. I was actually on the streets in 96, 97, I'm not, I'm sorry, 86, 87 and part of 88. I was in Transitions Mental Health in San Luis Obispo, a residential facility for people that suffers from emotional problems. But I, you know, reverted back to my old ways for reasons I don't know. I don't know. I mean, those were missed opportunities. So, you know, that's a point in your life where you have to take responsibility and not blame your past and say, okay, here was a moment in time where you could have done this, but you didn't because you made a bad decision, which is what I did. I made a very bad decision. And I went back to prison again for burglary. And I, two years or no, about 18 months. I think I served 18 months on a three-year sentence. And then after that, I was only out for maybe four months before I came out, you know, a criminal. I came out and, and I was, you know, I'm going to be a convict. I'm going to be a criminal. I'm going to sell drugs. I'm going to, um, and that was when I'd gotten, you know, in 92, I had gotten the uh, seven year. Yeah, 1992, I'd gotten seven year prison sentence. It finally, it finally ended in um, 92 
when I drew a very long, I, I, I got a seven year prison sentence and I did five years. And, um, I think I was fortunate. I was very fortunate. The California penal system had started making some changes and started addressing the mental health needs in, um, in prisoners who needed it. And, um, so I was actually able to take advantage of some counseling and some educational opportunities. And, um, you know, a lot of reflection on the type of person that I was becoming. You know, I was stealing cars, I was selling drugs, I was using drugs, I was using methamphetamine. And um, all of that, again, came to a head when um, I was in the courtroom and um, I had been aware of the type of person I becoming, but um, a young girl had gotten hurt as a result of our act, actions. And her arm was broken. And, um, you know, we were selling drugs and they tried to rob us and she got hurt. And I think that was a big change because I'd never hurt anybody up to that point. I'd never caused anybody any harm. And I knew right then it just, I had to figure something else out. And I had to, because I wasn't going to be the instrument of somebody else's support. Yeah, and that's where it was Michael's guilt over having hurt a young woman, combined with the wise words of his close friend, Eric, brought Michael to the realization that he had to reevaluate where his life was headed. Thankfully, he began to see things in a new light. And um, yeah, there was, you know, there was, there was, a, it, it was, it was just very shocking to me when it had, what I, what I had become. And I had a, I mean, I had a very close friend. His name was Eric Reddy. And he was, um, we were in transitions mental health together. He had had a phone conversation with me. I called him collect and he told me, he says, you know, Mike, you know, you're going to do all this time. You know, why don't you, you know, he just gave me this big long speech and it really hit home. It did. It really, really stuck. It really hit home. And, um, you know, he came to be a brother to me. And um, I had given him credit for, you know, instilling some values and responsibility in me. It's probably why I'm still alive in the day. The system that required 18-year-olds such as Michael, who knew little of the world outside of childcare institutions, to leave, did not have a plan in place for them, there had been no forethought to how these young adults would feed, clothe, and shelter themselves. Without a plan to help the children from McLaren Hall and other institutions like it, many drifted into crime, alcoholism, drug abuse, and prostitution. You mentioned earlier that there was a lack of nurture, uh, a lack of affection. Uh, that one of the biggest things for you, and, and despite the fear of people taking advantage of you or being mean to you, that had become a greater thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I had been accustomed to, basically. I had been accustomed to that level of, you know, apathy. You know, that's what I had come to expect from people. Um, I didn't understand it. You know, I didn't, I didn't know why people were that way. People are just mean and they don't have an incentive to be kind or, you know, to, to be nurturing or benevolent, you know, um, that's, that's how, that just was my view of people. You know, there were no nice people out there. It was me against the world. Then there was nothing interjecting into my life that was going to say that, oh, it's different. There actually is an organization here that helps or there's a group of people here that care. For Michael, when given the opportunity for redemption, he snatched at it. Working with a dedicated counselor, Michael found the opportunity to change his life for the better and get a plan together ahead of his release from prison. Okay, after you left prison at the age of 30, was it was it easier to find work or was it more difficult? This time, when I was at Vacaville State Prison, I actually had a counselor who was trying to put together something of an exit strategy. And six months in advance before your release date, they try to put together, a, you know, some sort of action plan to leap. Yes. I can't remember her name. I think it was... Um, some big long German name, Oppenkopf and Schnappen, something. I don't know. Um, but she was a very nice lady. And, you know, she was a prison counselor and she dealt with a lot of very, very tough people. She did. I mean, um, Vacaville was a prison where sexual predators went to and murderers went to. And, you know, um, but she still, I remember she still had the empathy to engage with you on a personal level. She knew what, you know, people were in there for. She knew what I was in there. I was in there for car theft, drugs, assault. Um, still wrong, but not on a level of what other people were in there for. She still saw me once a week and, and, you know, hey, let's talk about this and let's talk about that and let's find solutions and let's find, you know, let's find something here. There's not a lot of people in that position. When you get to that point in your life, when you're breaking those laws, the approach from correctional officers is, you know, you're done. Your life is over. You're doing, if, if you're not in here for life, you're doing life on the installment plan. That's the, the, that's the mentality. So I had to push all of that aside. And find that one person is like, hey, this person's interested in me. She's she wants to bring me in. I'm not gonna push this away. I'm gonna try to, this is a resource for me. And that was one of the things Eric told me. He 
look around at all the people around you and ask yourself, do you want to be like them? So no. Look at all the authority figures around you and ask yourself, is there just one that is interested in your development? Hold on to that. Don't let it go. Um, in 2004, my mother passed away. And um, I got to say goodbye. And I know that she looked at me with great sadness. She was, right before she died, she was, she looked, hey, she told me she was very proud that I had made it to where I had made it, and that I wasn't getting in trouble, and that, you know, I was on a, I was on a good path, and, but I could see the look in her eyes, and, you know, yeah, she, she wanted, she never said it. She said, yeah, I mean, outright, she said it with her eyes. You know, I'm sorry for what you did. You didn't have to go through that. What the authorities failed to see was that these weren't just numbers and statistics. These were children. What the staff and administrators at the institutions failed to recognize was that behind the tough exterior, there were vulnerable young people. They were pushing out the door had already gone through a lifetime of hurt and facing an uncertain future. With this kind of start in life, is it unsurprising that many of those leave the childcare system without an adequate plan and end up turning to crime to survive and ultimately end up in prison? Suggestions or how would you like to see the care system change in the U.S. and, and uh, across the system ch change in the U.S.? It's easy to sweep aside everything under one umbrella and say, well, cause of the problem is uh, they don't want to do this and that's their fault and that's the end of it. I don't want to talk anymore about it. When problems, I think, are far more complex than that. I mean, kids are very fragile. You know, their minds are very fragile constantly engaged because children of that age have their own language and their language is behavior. They don't formulate interactive intellectual capacity to have deep conversations and so forth, if that makes any sense. So their behavior is a reflection of that. And if people counselors, uh, people in the child protection services can start to recognize the behavior as cries for help as opposed to a means to enforce discipline or correct that behavior. I think that that would be a major hurdle. Because from my perspective in the 80s when I was growing up, it was, like I said, it was discipline-focused. There was no, okay, why are you talking at this point when you're not supposed to be talking no it's your talking we're gonna use physical restraint to stop you from talking now i would say okay we have rules it, this is why we have rules and, and we should talk about it and we should learn to respect rules and so forth begin there instead of going straight to the discipline if that makes any sense going right from you know from a to z it's like if you get pulled over for a traffic ticket, 
or for a traffic violation instead of giving you a ticket, they pull you out and execute you right there. Okay, you know, that's, you know. I think they really need to identify why those behaviors exist in children and, and speak to the behavior, not to, you know, because that's their language when they're, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. That is their language. Michael still has his problems, but he feels that he manages them a lot better these days and hopes that his journey can serve to help others. And now in Colorado, you seem to be quite comfortable in life. Well, comfortable with yourself. Would you describe your, um, would you describe how you are now as an inspiration for others? <laughs> I, I mean, even to this day, I still have my share of problems. I just think I manage them better. Yes, to some degree, yes, because it is possible to break that prison cycle. It is possible to break that cycle of crying. Um, it's definitely possible. You can do it. It's not easy. It's 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 hard hard work. Um, I mean, there was a lot of there was still a lot of homelessness. There was a lot of poverty. There was, but instead of going out and breaking the law, I made a decision to dig through the dumpster for food. I made a decision to um, instead of breaking the law to go down and. Um, offer there's offer to um fill sandbags for people and earn money there were many moments of desperation but i still made that decision okay i need to do what's legal and not what's illegal so it is possible to break those cycles and yes i think it can be an inspiration what advice would you give to someone in the system like you were Be brave. Be brave. No, it's not going to last forever. You have to be brave. You have to be strong. And you have to be open. Because if you encounter one grown-up, one adult, just one, who shows compassion, don't turn your back on that. Because that may be the last time you see that. You never know. You never know when you are going to find yourself in a situation when there is no compassion, there's no understanding, and there's no, you know, comfort, there's no love, because that can pop up at any time. You can find yourself in that black hole where everybody around you is just angry and hateful. If you can just find one, just one, you know, counselor that shows an interest in your development, there's an interest in your growth, your well-being. Don't let go of it. My friend Eric, you know, he was very encouraging. You know, I guess it was the closest thing that, that I felt that I had to a brother. And he was very encouraging and very supportive. And, you know, he says, go for it. Just go for it. You know, just, you know, leave this behind you and just start a new adventure. You know, reinvent yourself, as he would say. Try to reinvent yourself. And um, that's what I did. And here I am.
Without a plan in place for how they would navigate their days, weeks, and months following their exit from McLaren Hall and other centers like it, young people like Mike struggled. Without a clear plan, they struggled towards earning money and finding a safe place to stay. They were unable to make long-term plans instead of focusing on more immediate needs and earning enough money to feed themselves through the next 24 hours. For many, the easiest way to do this was turn to crime. Yeah, Michael was one of these people. At a very young age, he had made the mature decision to get away from home life that he could see wasn't working. But after that, he bounced from one institution to another within the childcare system before leaving it behind at the age of 18. Without a plan for how he would survive, Michael did turn to crime, and he did end up in prison. Fortunately for Michael, he found the guidance he needed from a friend and the support he needed from a counselor who helped him with an exit strategy from prison. Michael's story highlights how the various failings in McLaren Hall and other institutions like it led a young man to feel he was deemed unworthy of affection and that suicide was a way out. But the more caring attitude shown by these children's centers and by a community and, and all of us, these children could have had a very different life. Maybe they they wouldn't have had a turn to drugs, prostitution, crime, and ended up in prison. You know, people ask me a lot, why do I tell these stories? Because I know these stories are hard to hear, and I know it sounds a little depressing, and... But I was just shocked. I, I literally was shocked when... I realized that there are so many kids out there that don't ever experience love. And I just think every kid deserves to feel love and be loved. And I mean, I think it's a miracle that these people I get to meet and, and hear their stories that almost despite it all, they, they do find some, some happiness. I don't, I don't know if I could be as strong as the people that I tell the stories about. And I don't know. I guess that's maybe why I tell them. They, they just impressed me so much because I had so much I took for granted growing up. I have two amazing parents, amazing siblings. I have a great extended family. I, I had more love than I knew what to do with. Really, I never experienced ever a time in my life where I thought that I couldn't achieve my dreams or, or, or be who I wanted to be. And when I started to get involved in this area, it, it kind of woke me up, made me thank my parents a lot, but made me just think, oh my God, like, I don't, I don't know if I could have dealt with all their hurt. And we cut the, the podcast quite a bit. Um, and sometimes we cut out stories that might be too hard for other people to hear and also might be something that they don't want to share um, to the public quite yet because they're still going through their healing process. But we have been doing, a, we did a series on human trafficking and now we're doing a series on the foster care system and we'll be working next on a, um, a missing woman by the name of Shelley DeRoger, um, who was a missing sex worker, is still a missing sex worker, and her story and, 
and the investigation that's ongoing. And when I hear Shelly's story, I, I'm once again just like, wow, how can people handle this much hurt in their lifetime? Like, how much can you beat a person down? And I'm just amazed that they can pick themselves back up and and then at the end for her to go missing and and for something probably very horrible to have happened to her. I just think how who who gets chosen, who gets to be who gets to be in the good life and who gets to have to struggle. I, I don't know who makes that decision. Um, but my goal is maybe for people that have had a tough life to feel inspiration. And for those that have had a good life to maybe have a little more empathy and compassion and be proud that our tax dollars in Canada go to help social justice and help people less fortunate. I'm, I'm proud to be Canadian. I'm proud to pay my taxes. Um, I think we can be doing a lot more, obviously. Um, I'm many times left disappointed in the system, but there is not um, a moment I regret having some of my good fortune um, help others. This is Carlos Demas Tolstoy at Stand Up, Speak Up, brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. Wearable Therapy by Toki is a clothing company dedicated to spreading awareness about social issues through fashion. Our inspiring designs get the conversation started about issues like human trafficking, bullying, homelessness, mental illness, and more. Check out our products at www.wearabletherapytoki.com. Grown up, grow up, I'll grow up.
Sometimes I wish I was still a Imagine is a poem that was written by a prisoner in California in May 2006. Imagine a world where time stands still, where nothing you do is you offer your own free will. Stripped of your freedom, your hopes, your pride, surrounded by strangers with no place to hide. Imagine a place where you're told what to wear, a place where no one is allowed to grow hair. You're told each day you're not to talk, and where and when can and cannot walk. A world where you sleep surrounded by hate, where all you can do is just sit and wait. Imagine a world where you have no choice, where you can't even think because of the noise. A world where you work but get no pay, and made to feel worthless each and every day. A world where days crawl like a snail, where all you have hope for is a piece of mail. A world where you have to eat real quick. Does this sound like a world that would make you sick? Imagine a world surrounded by wire. Able to walk from this place is my greatest desire. A world like this is hard to conceive. Yet here I am and cannot leave. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.